I started the podcast in 2017, and I luckily, just by the grace of probably the Deleuze <laughs> bot on Twitter, probably found Taylor and... Oh, is that right? Okay. We did an episode together, and then we started yes. working on his, you know, he had translated Machine and Unconscious, so we did mm -hmm. several episodes on that. Yeah. And then we start. we did recently, we read Libidinal Economy together mm -hmm. with another two people and... Which was, which like, was wild. Yeah. That was, that was actually, actually yeah. Crazy. If you haven't, read, if you haven't um, visited that book in a while, wow. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, because it almost feels like that book is a meme. <laughs> like when you actually try to read it and put it into context, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit, a little bit crazy, but we've been doing a lot of psychoanalysis lately. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I've been listening to a few of your shows. They're really, really good. Oh, well, man. Yeah, okay, you. now, 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 I feel a little embarrassed. That's, Why? that's great. I mean, no, I. You never know um, who's listening, and it's nice to get feedback. I mean, right. that's that's great. I, uh, I, in fact, the last episode we just did on narcissism, I was, you know, because we were looking for something to fill in last week, but we were already obviously. I mean, I was halfway through with your book at the time and still reading it. And I was kind of thinking like, what would be a short piece that we could read that would obviously be an important piece, which, you know, it's mm -hmm. arguably one of the most important essays that he's got, but could tie into some of the stuff, you know, related to your, the questions that you, that you raised and including like mm -hmm. the way Freud thinks about you know, he thinks about sexuation in, in that in that essay and, and the different types of narcissism that are typical for men and women. And uh, mm -hmm. obviously it's, you know, he's still too kind of, you know, he's still too kind of hard and fast binary. Obviously with Lacan, it, it goes mm -hmm. so much further. But one of the things that I remember that struck me is how you know, he gets this idea of, of this kind of constitutive bisexuality from Fleece, but he seems to never take that. I It seems to always drop out that idea when it suits him, you know. And so I think that that's why after reading your book, I wanted to do justice. And because I, I remember as a grad student, I had poked around in Seminar 20, but never read it like cover to cover. Because it is, yeah. even for Lacan, it's <laughs> it's dense and there's so many puns and it's just like, ah, yeah, you feel yeah. like he's fucking with you. But I got a lot, <laughs> I got a lot out of it. I, I really did. Yeah, I, yeah. I got a lot out of um, reading that and it, it helped me to think more deeply about your work. Sadly, I didn't have time to read the other side of psychoanalysis, uh, Seminar 17, which seems to be also very important. I mean, would you say those two seminars do some of, I mean, it seems like you work through a lot of, a lot of their implications. Yeah. Um, I mean, work. I suppose there's sort of the two kind of main influences really. Yeah. 17 and 20. I think so. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sort of systematic in the way that I have to read every single seminar and, you know, right. do because I mean, I'm, I'm just not really built like that. <laughs> I prefer to just take things where they, make sense and then you know ignore other things that don't fit the picture <laughs> yeah i mean that's um, 
Because I was going to ask you, you had described yourself or your thinking process or your research process as, as a little chaotic. And, mm. you know, I, I really kind of vibe with that, too. Uh, would you did you kind of sum it up there in that in that way with with kind of, you know, something something grabs your attention and it, and it works or it doesn't. And you don't you don't try to just read everything and, and be encyclopedic about it or. I don't know. It's weird because like. It's, it's chaos, but it's also very organised chaos. It's sort of like, I suppose, some people would start off with, I suppose, a plan and, right. map, <laughs> and map out everything, whereas I'd start off with, like, a, a lump right. of, mm-hmm. of um, say, you know, plaster, that then I just, like, chip it. And I don't really know how I'm chipping it, but then I'll carve it, carve it, carve it, carve it, and then at the end I'll be like, okay, now that's perfect. But I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> have known how I right. got to that stage or had any sort of roadmap to it so it's not like oh it's chaotic in a sense I don't care it just can be anything because I, right. I do care that it has like, like an interior consistency but the way that I get to the consistency doesn't have to be the traditional route of like right. let me plan my chapters and let me work out my argument yeah. as I go along that's sort of the way the podcast flows actually that's like the perfect <laughs> it is you know it, it kind of is you know it, it's it's more about the the desire you have to be driven you have to want it and you know, if it's not interesting, if it's not interesting you, then I feel like when we discuss things, if it just doesn't use your, you could use the terms here, like if it doesn't give you a little bit of that enjoyment, a little bit of that jouissance, if it just doesn't keep the, the motors going, then it's, mm. you're, you're going to be, it's going to be obvious, right? In your voice, in the mm. questions you ask, it's going to be obvious that you're just doing a kind mm. of rote recitation mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. something and and nobody i mean nobody gets off on that right so exactly. um, yeah including the ultimate form of security which is this is a typical violence of Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, just want to throw out Taylor and I do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Please do consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. But uh, Taylor and I are very excited to bring you this week a very interesting discussion on her new book, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence. We have Dr. Isabel Millar joining us for the happy hour. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, where you are, oh, rather. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really, really lovely to talk to you. Taylor's icebreaking question will kind of lead into mine today. Mm-hmm. As you can see, it sort of be what was the sort of impetus that sort of got you into psychoanalysis broadly speaking, mm. and then perhaps let us know how how did AI become an interest? Yeah, because that's an unusual pairing. But I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the, the psychoanalysis question. That, I mean. How how far should I go back? That's the that's the question. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Point, isn't it? How how do I know? How do I know when it started? Right. I mean, well, yeah, true. I suppose I I would say the boring answer would be well, one day I was <laughs> watching a documentary and this 
Slovenian guy came on called, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Actually, that's actually true. I did I did see a documentary and it was the Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Well, yeah. But the thing is, is that I'd, I'd done a philosophy degree already some years before. And so I already had some idea about gotcha. psychoanalysis and, and Lacan and French theory because I did my philosophy degree in uh, Sussex and they're not renowned for being very highly psychoanalytic, but it was definitely a thing that I knew about. But then when you, um, as I'm sure most people know who do philosophy um, or theory, when you do that as a sort of starting career, people then try immediately and get you away from doing anything to do with theory because it's supposedly not a job. <laughs> so I, I had a, a, a long period after my initial studies where I lived in, I lived in Spain actually, and I did other things. And um, when I came back from there, came back to England, I had various sort of life crises. I had a Oh, I had a breakup from Spain, that's why I came back. And then um, my, we moved house, and then my mum died. So very suddenly, she got ill and she had a shed cancer. She, she died within like six months. And then I was kind of like in a big emotional life-changing crisis, not a very good place in my life. And I thought, you know what, I need to go back to the thing that I actually really find interesting and care about, which is philosophy and theory and thinking. And so I was thinking, oh, I need to go back and do a master's. And then I saw the... The Perverse Guide to Geology, and I thought, oh, so it's not the case that you can't do philosophy as a career. This person does it, right. and I and and I looked him up, and I was like, okay, so he's at Birkbeck, right? And I literally went and and applied to Birkbeck and started my my masters, and then from there, um, the journey further into Lacanian psychoanalysis began, and I I realised how much it was sort of like the most exciting dimension mm. of all of the theory that I've done so far. So that's how it first started, the psychoanalysis aspect, yeah. In my undergraduate studies, I studied English and uh, literature. And um, as part of that, it's kind of funny that I I got exposed a little bit to, I think, Baudrillard and Foucault, um, mm. Derrida as part of that. But it's, it's funny that this teacher I had for my English degree, the year before that her she had replaced uh, Todd McGowan. So mm. it was really funny. Like I had no exposure to psychoanalysis until fairly recently. Also, probably primarily it was Zizek too for me, I think, that got me interested in Lacan specifically. And so I just thought it was kind of really funny that we had this narrow miss, like this whole trajectory of, <laughs> of things could have been totally different. And yeah, then to yeah. have him uh, actually be on the podcast <laughs> later on, that was, uh, that was wow. really funny. And, and Cooper, you may not know, but uh, on the back of the yeah uh, yeah I did actually Isabel's see book. oh you, you saw the the blur <laughs> of course okay. yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah I, I have a very kind of similar trajectory with that too and you know I have a had a, have an English degree and a philosophy degree you know I got the English degree first and I remember before you go into the higher level classes you have to it's a class called practical criticism which basically they they force you to read you know, some of the, the critical theory stuff. So like Lacan and Derrida. And I remember having this big Norton anthology of uh, theory and criticism. And one of the first mm -hmm. essays that I read in that class was the um, entrance of the eye and into the symbolic, the mirror phase, uh, mm -hmm. the mirror stage essay. And just, I remember being completely, it was, I mean, even if that's one of the easier written essays that, that Lacan has, that still kind of like blows your mind. Mm. Um, but it, but it, but it did fascinate me, and that's why I went back to get the the philosophy degree because that kind of the the little taste of literary theory I wanted to have like 
you know, a broader background. And of course, you know, Zizek is one of those, I mean, he almost single-handedly gives you that philosophy to psychoanalysis pipeline. He, he really is one of the cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. And as you said, he proves that you can do both, right? I mean, even mm-hmm. as we see from, you know, a lot of your your work with the later Lacan, even if we start to hear about anti-philosophy, people like Badu as well show that, you know, just because, um, you know, the, the discourses aren't incompatible, even if they're distinct, right? That mm. they can they can sort of work together. That is actually fascinating. And just to hear about, I guess, would, would you want to say a word or two about how AI became dovetailed with the, the psychoanalysis interest? Yeah, so when I began my PhD, I was sort of very in the kind of discourses, much more of Deleuze and Guattari actually, and um, on the side of new materialism and speculative realism and, and that side of things. And uh, not to say I lost interest in that, but I got the idea that there was something in those discourses that didn't quite hit the spot when it came to what I was interested in in relation to artificial intelligence. And this concern with the body and speech and suffering and sex, which to me was kind of like the most interesting aspects of the questions that I wanted to ask. And the thing that psychoanalysis gives you above all modes of thought, I felt, well, you know, this is a kind of missing aspect because there there are Mm -hmm. quite a lot of people engaging with, I think, the question of data and the question of cybernetics and the question of the much more hard science aspects to the question of artificial intelligence, which is not really the direction, obviously, as you will have seen, that the book goes in. And and I, I just thought this was a missing link, really. So at first it started off much more broadly about technology and about sex and about the sort of new symptoms, because I was very like um, influenced by the clinical aspects of the Lacanian field, because when I began my uh, Doctor, I, I um, was taught lots of theory by clinicians, um, and, and, and clinicians actually in the Millerian school. So, okay, which okay. is a is a whole other can of worms that we might <laughs> get onto later. But there's like lots of very interesting theoretical developments there that that kind of fed into the direction of my research, and that I saw kind of weaving in with other theory questions relating to sort of this sort of Baudrillardian aspects to my research that I thought, oh, this is quite interesting because there, there seems to be a sort of a missed encounter between a much more conceptual, theoretical aspects of the symptoms and the more clinical, traditionally sort of psychoanalytic side of them. So it was through this, through kind of doing this double move when I was on the one hand doing more philosophical studies around my question and then really doing just proper clinical work not clinical work but lit but you know learning about the clinic that right. i i got the interest of of trying to tackle this question from a much more psychoanalytic perspective so yeah so then the sort of technology became much more um centered around not just technology as this broad sort of kind of critique of instrumental rationality which i thought was a bit boring it's mm. you know I, i'm not really doing critical theory per se sort of frankfurt school stuff right, right. I, I, you know i didn't really want to go into this whole critique of instrumental rationality and looking at the culture industry i, I thought mm, that's not that's not it either right right it was right. much more conceptual it was much more on the level of okay what's happening with 
the way that we try and conceptualize artificial intelligence and why is it not just simply a question of either science or fiction because it's both and I thought psychoanalysis is actually the only discourse that allows you to talk about both science and fiction in a rigorous and conceptual way and that's why it became the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence I suppose. I, I mean I love that answer and and you know Lacan himself points out at least in seminar 20 but I believe he points it out in seminar seven about um Bentham's theory of fictions right which Mm. which is which just goes to your point about about the uh being able to do both Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and and you do mobilize both and you you even kind of it seems like in the early chapter maybe chapter one or the introduction where you you bring up a little bit of the Frankfurt School stuff, and mm. just to just to kind of give give a little bit of that. But it's like, no, that's not that's not what we're doing, and, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. it honestly is probably you know it, it's it's probably already a saturated field, right? So yeah. it is yeah. nice that that there is something unique about your approach and the subject matter. Uh, so it gives it it gives it a kind of a niche feel. Where yeah. it doesn't, you do bring in very early on, you know, when you first start reading it, you do bring in a lot of these current thinkers, you know, mm-hmm. including Malibu and Bostrom and Bratton and some of these, some of these, these, these contemporary thinkers, but that kind of helps to set the, the tone for like covering the, mm-hmm. the bases, given the broad picture. And then you're able to segue nicely into the, the psychoanalytic stuff more, um, yeah. more particularly. Yeah. Cause I think sort of, given it's it's almost like a, it was such a Herculean task to try and bring the two elements together, psychoanalysis and AI, that I I had to find a way, a sort of, a, a sort of elegant way of trying to clear the ground and say, okay, this is why we're talking about it and this is what's been said about it without having to do a sort of social sciences rundown of who right. said what, when. And there was a question of like choosing my sources and and picking my fights, I suppose, in the, mm-hmm. in the, in the most efficient way possible in order to get to the concepts that I thought were relevant um, for my question and hence why I sort of it's sort of like a two-part thesis and the first part is building up my concepts to right. what I actually want to do and then the second part is sort of elaborating the way that I want to do that. I do like and think find it quite interesting that you're taking Baudrillard and Lacan and kind of doing a little bit of a mashup there. I had had kind of a similar idea with related to kind of a study of Twitter and and desire and posting and sort of that, uh, which I won't go into, but I just think it's kind of cool that you see that sort of convergence as well. I was first probably exposed to Baudrillard before before Lacan, and Lacan is my favorite, maybe mm. thinker, I would say. I, yeah, I call him the uh, yeah. what is the the best pure thinker. So I thought it yeah. was kind of cool to see your quote from Bejou, which I hadn't seen the quote that he places Lacan on the same terrain as, as uh, Plato and Kant. So that, yeah, yeah. that was kind of a fun little aside for me. Yeah, I, I mean, he's he's sort of because he so touches on on everything. You know, he shits in everyone's corner, doesn't he? Like he can't, <laughs> he can't. No one can say, "Oh, but you're not this, but you're not that," because right. he can. He basically gets away with doing everything. Um, yes, you know, which is bloody annoying. What a bastard! <laughs> like, how, who who gets to be that clever? I don't know, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, and and I see you could see that Zizek, uh, you know, again is carrying that torch in, in certain ways by you know bringing in Hegel and and Kant and the German idealists, but also just picking from all sorts of different 
contemporary cultural artifacts, you know, mm. um, literature and, and especially film. Um, mm -hmm. And you yourself to discuss the way that you, you use film in the second part of the, mostly the second part, but not just, but you, you discuss how it's related to a certain theoretical use of the gaze or, or certain highlighting of, of, of that. Do you want to say a, a word or two about, I mean, I know not just trying to jump to part two, but do you mm -hmm. want to say, you know, how you either picked your, you know, the films that you chose or were, mm -hmm. were these just, were these movies that you enjoyed, but that also moved you theoretically or was there a strategy there or kind of, you know, a yeah, little bit I mean, there was a sort of strategy in that, well, obviously I sort of work up to the, the sort of central concept of the sex bot, but it's, you know, it's quite a, um, a specific thing that I'm talking about. And that's why I, I spend quite a lot of time saying what I'm not talking about or elaborating exactly in what sense I'm trying to theorize this figure, because I see it as the, as more than just talking about female robots in films, because it's really not about that. It's more right. about trying to find ways of exploring the different theoretical dimensions of this relationship between psychoanalysis and AI that we can only understand after we've kind of tried to explain how we're using the Kantian questions. So right. each film represents a sort of, represents an iteration of one of the Kantian questions. You know, what can I know? What should I do? What can I hope for? And each film is a way for me to try and use that question as a psychoanalytic approach to AI, as opposed to a philosophical approach to AI. Right. Hence why I have to go through the sort of detour of anti-philosophy in the first half to show why it's why it's psychoanalysis and not philosophy. Because why we're not talking about a philosophical being, a sort of, of conscious being, we're talking about a psychoanalytic split subject, a, a speaking body. But again, you know, there are so many sort of dimensions to, to how I'm trying to talk about it that I use the films as more like conceptual playgrounds as opposed to sort of classic Lacanian film theory approach. So, it's, it, I mean, yes, we're, talk, we're talking about the gaze and these kind of elements, but it's not really, it's not really my concern to talk about the film as a, a filmic text in that sense. It's more of a philosophical object. Yeah, I think narrative just lends itself to, I always try to bring in some sort of narrative approach to these, whenever we have these psychoanalytic or really any discussions, because it just helps ground things so well. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I just yeah. to get that. I mean, and that's a little bit what we tried to do. It was a kind of an experiment uh, because I had never really read comic books, but that's what we tried to do the, with the Swamp Thing episode is bringing in Freud and Lacan and Guattari mm. and sort of, um, you know, I think that the I have a new appreciation for the comic book as a medium, you know, mm -hmm. for mobilizing the, the image and the text and um, sort of doing it in a way that, you know, just makes it, a totally different experience than either watching a film or a TV series or even mm -hmm. reading a, a work of literature. It's mm -hmm. able to straddle those things. I did want to. I, I did want to say I really like your working definition of AI that you provide on page five, mm -hmm. and, I, and, it, and it and it kind of crystallizes how yoking together AI and psychoanalysis. It, it, you almost uh, provide just a very elegant way of phrasing it. And if I may quote you, you, mm -hmm. you say. Um, <laughs> The general working definition of artificial intelligence as, quote, a non-human mode of thought, whether embodied or disembodied, which acts autonomously 
and whose motives and purpose we may not necessarily be aware of, nor even understand. And you, you go on to say that, I think what's so elegant about the definition is that it already brings to mind a kind of working definition of the unconscious. Yes. Do you want to say anything uh, about that? Was that was that purposeful or or again strategic or was that just something that that kind of clicked and? Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of one of the cruxes of the the project, which is that my interest was to show how so far when most people have sort of talked about artificial intelligence, it's kind of modelled on a, a sort of self-present transparent subject who is intelligible to themselves a sort of very philosophical idea of subjectivity which of course for psychoanalysis is inherently problem problematized and the question of the unconscious already is the description of, of what you just said was my description of ai which is that you know it's it's an inhuman mode of thought that we don't necessarily understand right we we, we, we don't know how it works and yet we try to decipher it but there is something about it which is inherently obscure and structurally impossible. And it contains a sort of black box, which is just the structure of, of the subject itself. And hence why then I you know, try and go into Lacan's elaboration of, of subjectivity in a, in a sort of a succinct way as I can, given the the scope of the project but and his relationship to Freud and science and truth and anti-philosophy and where this kind of builds up towards the question of the relationship between thinking and being. So the kind of disjuncture between thinking and being which one could say is the sort of one of the battlegrounds of philosophy is for Lacan where he would locate the concept of Jouissance of, of the question of enjoyment, which resides in this uh, absence, the absence sex that Badiou talks about, and hence why I have to sort of go via the anti-philosophical route to get to the conceptual question of enjoyment, rather than just talking about it as a sort of clinical phenomenon, because I really want to show how there is a sort of a theoretical route that you can take in order to understand the relationship between AI and psychoanalysis, which is not just talking about the imaginary or talking about fantasy or talking about our relationship to digital objects, which would be a slightly different question. So it's, it's really a matter of trying to establish in the first part of the book the precise of um, conceptual framework that allows us to talk about the jouissance as something inherent to artificial intelligence, if that makes sense. I would just say that one of the most fascinating parts in the very opening is this shift that you delineate from asking the question of can it think does it know you know whether it be computers or, or artificial intelligence or robots however you want to say it to this question of does it enjoy mm -hmm. you know and what's that mode and asking that question i think really is a thread that we see arcing through that consistently is that you come back to and elaborate mm -hmm. And it is that notion, the way that I understood how anti-philosophy was, just to kind of piggyback off what you were saying, how anti-philosophy was, was important to articulate early on is this notion that, of, that we only know the unconscious, quote unquote, through, through speaking, through speech, right? Mm -hmm. Through the speaking body. And it's, you know, it's where 
what is he? I think in the, the he has a session on the Baroque, and I believe it's like basically subtitled that you know where it speaks, it enjoys, and mm-hmm. it knows it knows nothing, knows of, nothing about it. it. Yes. Yeah. Would that yeah. kind of crystallize one of the aspects of anti philosophy for you? This, as you said, this disjunction of thinking and speaking, or thinking and and being. It's it is the that becomes part of your way of, I guess, revealing or, or unpacking the significance of, of what's entailed in Lacanian jouissance? Yes. So the question of speech is, of course, the central material of, of psychoanalysis. It's, it's the only material of psychoanalysis, I mean, clinically speaking. So, and it, the fact that we speak is what makes us sexed beings, is what makes us subjects, is what makes us inherently sexuated because of this structural problem of once you've had to speak, you've left the sort of domain of imminent being because you're immediately cut off from this immediacy of your of your body. So, you know, if, if we want to talk about that in, in sort of developmental terms and in, in, in a very prosaic way, you, you can imagine just a simple question of the, the child being born into a world and being a, just a, this undifferentiated blob that has impulses and has to scream mm-hmm. out to get those seen to, whether it's hunger or pain or being cold or whatever. And these immediate impulses, you know, once once they're screamed, they they're transformed from s- screams into words, or they become they enter into a system of differentiation, a, a system of signs, which of course is does not belong to this body this this is something that you're born into you have no control over it but suddenly your scream turns into a word and that word can never capture the scream it can never capture it can never fully account for what it is that you needed or wanted so the sort of discrepancy between what's lost in the 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 entrance into speech is you know very crudely speaking what, what we call castration and accounts for this inherent impossibility and lack that you would experience as a speaking being. Now, the fact that that is part and parcel of human experience is often forgotten um, by philosophy. And, and that's one of Lacan's main sort of bugbears, I suppose, about what philosophy doesn't really get about what the stakes are of psychoanalysis and its relationship to philosophies, because also, you know, philosophy also speaks Philosophy right. speaks. So how does it speak? And what is lost in philosophy that can only be recuperated via the back door? So I think that this is, there's a quote, and I'm going to misquote it now, but I think it's from Radiophony when Lacan says, what is what is said is, all, is, all, is always forgotten behind. The fact that we speak is, all, is always forgotten behind what is said. Some, something along those lines. But right. you know, the, the meaning of something and its, and its place within a system kind of faces the fact that, that you speak where does this come from and what is from where from where does it come so of course we could get into the whole question of structure but but i think maybe we'll we'll come to that if that, if that comes up on another note but yeah so that's that's a sort of inherent question of where how anti-philosophy relates to psychoanalysis and and, and the question of speech yeah i think the two big questions that i mentioned to taylor before even starting the book were number one was you know, given my armchair Lacanian status would be one, how can a machine lack in the Lacanian sense? I thought that was a super interesting question, which I think you kind of point out here with 
the speaking being versus drive being, which I thought was a interest was a great way to delineate that really broader question of you know how does how is subjectivity constituted for this? I guess this sort of in a sense it's like a singularity mm-hmm. almost if you're thinking in in terms of AI. So there was that was the bigger question and the one that I think is more relevant. My second question was in regards to I guess this was more like derived from the the notion of the sex bot, which you don't necessarily have to get into, but I just would at least want to mention this briefly, would be in terms of the master-slave dialectic, in terms of recognition and enjoyment for the whomever is, um, I guess, engaging in activity with the sex bot. Is, is that an enjo- is that an actual enjoyment possible if there's no, re- if there's a, not a recognition or if there's a recognition of the I guess, sort of quote unquote artificiality of the sex bot rather. But mm. maybe the first question is more relevant and can kind of push us forward as far as delineating between speaking being and drive being and kind of that problematic. Can a machine lack or can this AI mm. have a lack? Was the kind of yeah. the fundamental in, in Lacanian terms. Right, mm-hmm. in Lacanian terms. And I think, I think Cooper and I, we, we talked a little bit about that as we were imagining what you're what would be like tackled in, in your book before having read it. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we were kind of talking about that. And, but I think he was deviating to this. The speaking being drive being, I think sort mm-hmm. of encapsulated what I was really ultimately getting at because like, sure, this artificial intelligence can speak, but does it have a drive? That's a, mm-hmm. those are mm-hmm. two. That's an interesting distinction yeah. to make and explore. I think. I mean, the, the, the sort of, the, the transition between you know can it can it think to does it enjoy right. is is to me a mirror of the the sort of move from a concern with the unconscious as the question of language and the unconscious as structured like a language to what you would say is the sort of later Lacan of the unconscious of the speaking body or the parletre, which is an acknowledgement of the fact that when we're talking about the unconscious, we're not just talking about the question of combinatorial system of signs and trying to interpret what they are and then figure out the code in order to relieve suffering or whatever, but rather the question of a body that enjoys the signifier, that is is inherently carved up by language and cannot be separated from it in the sort of easy way of trying to like unpick a, a problem. So... And this is, you know, this is would be to use the to term la langue and the question of the the speech of the the, the inherent um, meaningless enjoyment of speech that uh, you could equate with the child's first experiences of language and how they hit the body. But more than that, it's you know the idea of of speech, the materiality of speech as being imbued and suffused with enjoyment. And it's not just it's not just a, s- a simple question of a system of science. So in that sense, when we're talking about thought as opposed to enjoyment in relation to AI, it's really to try and move away from conceiving of the question of a machine. Because actually, I never really talk about machines. That's and <laughs> I'm, in a sense, not concerned with the machinic aspect of AI, it's as strange as that sounds, because, because humans are also machines. We have a body that... that has rules and you know cognitive science and neuroscience tries to work out the rules of our brain and our and our um, neurosystem. So if that were my interest, it would have been a very different book. But precisely because of the fact that psychoanalysis actually isn't interested in a funny way in the brain because it has a completely different whole 
dimension of how to talk about it that it would you you'd you have to you'd have to employ very different terminology and you'd have the stakes would be very different so in a sense the machine is not really in the book there is no machines for me in this book because i think the first part of the book is to try and establish why when we're talking about ai we're already trying to imagine what bojo would have been worried about in the sense of a fully replicated human because once you fully replicated it it's a different question you know there're different problems that you have because at the moment we don't really have we don't really have any examples in the real world of what ai means because we only have humanoid looking things with very sort of perfunctory ais and the, t- the sorts of ais that are are the most advanced are not embodied ais they're ais right. that do things that, that the type of processing that is not necessarily linked to what we would call anything like consciousness right. but again and this is the problem is that i think what i was really interested in is trying to to move away from any kind of ideas of what is consciousness and how can we establish how can we find consciousness in the machine because we can't you know we can we can't do that with humans let alone with ais right. so i suppose that's that was my point really is to try and show why philosophy is inherently a very poor tool to try and think about artificial intelligence i do think that that's 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 a good point you make uh, because you know it is it is true and and as i said we were we were asking this question of machines before having read your book so it is you know thinking back right. on it you're right you don't I, you know, you may use the word machinic as an adjective for mm. discussing, I forget if it's in the discussion of drives or whatnot, but you're right, you don't, you don't discuss machines and you're not necessarily interested in this question of consciousness because at a certain level, asking that question, not only, as you said, gets us back into a kind of philosophical register, but mm. potentially reduces things to an imaginary level in, in Lacan sense where we recognize the quote-unquote humanity and this Mm -hmm. is why your discussion of the Turing test early on is so fascinating and I forget which author you know I guess it doesn't matter but um I had it written down but you you discuss the interesting implications of Turing you know within the the test or within the imitation game of passing right as as human and relating it to this to this question of drag, right? This mm-hmm. question of kind of of dressing up, if you will, the the void of subjectivity or, or sexuation. Mm-hmm. And it's not about it's not about um, convincing, you know, about one's gender, but it is about suspending belief or disbelief. I liked mm-hmm. how you you uh, you put it that way, and you you kind of go through, you know, some of the the obvious. I don't know if you would call it a horrific irony surrounding Turing's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happened to Turing, mm. you know, in terms of being sexually cast or being chemically castrated and, yeah. and whatnot, sort of being punished for his for his sexuality. And, mm-hmm. and that, I thought that was a again, it, it's it's it is horrific thinking about it. But I thought that was an interesting connection to be made in one yeah. of the one of the fathers of artificial intelligence going through him, himself being kind of put to the test of being a sexuated body. Exactly. being kind of punished and suffering for yeah. that no exactly and that's that's why I, I found it really fascinating that um as far as i know not 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 much has been said about the fact that because that was i think that was benjamin bratton that that mentioned okay. the that sounds right the turing test yeah and you know how the horrible irony of him being chemically castrated but but the the turing test is one of the lesser 
spoken about things is the fact that it one of its aspects was to try and see whether you could dissimulate your gender or whether you somebody could tell by by the answers given whether this it was a male or a female and i think at the time it was it was kind of hiding behind sort of the normative ideas about gender mm-hmm. and what men do and what women do which hid it which hid an actually much more interesting philosophical question about the question of structure and the question of speech in relation to objectivity and how if you think about the Turing test in relation to the entrance into subjectivity, how it allows us to think about sexuation and what we're doing when we're trying to imagine these artificial beings. So when I first in- introduced my first iteration of the, the sex bot in the canteen question, what can I know? I foreground it with Kopjek's discussion of Kant's antinomies mm. because she she you know it, it does the, the famous move of, of showing how in Kant's antinomies, sexual difference appears. And, and he, he actually didn't know it himself, but he was talking about that he was already mapping out the graphs of sexuation within his mathematical and dynamical antinomies. And she kind of goes through explaining exactly how you can map the mathematical antinomies onto the left-hand side of Lacan's graph, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought this was really interesting to think about in terms of the, the Turing test and um, how you can kind of like find this neat little way of understanding that as a sort of form of a sort of form of an antinomy of like a um, Kantian antinomy by entering by doing the Turing test but this then goes into the films etc so right and I, I do think that you know one of the in the in the next chapter right mm. which is you know about what should I do I mm. I, I asked you this and I, I really was was curious and, and 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 you mentioned that this might be on some of the work that you're developing now, do you want to say a little bit about this um, this term you you coined of of patty politics, right? Mm-hmm. Which which you point out comes from the Latin patior to to mm-hmm. suffer or to undergo, right? Um, in the sense of you know having an agent and having a we don't really have good English for it, right? Uh, for that which undergoes the action, you know. We mm-hmm. do you want to? Maybe say a little bit about that in relation to, because I believe is it is it Ex Machina that you that is that the film for that chapter that you work through in this question of suffering links to um, no it is actually it's actually um this, that chapter is Ghost in the Shell but what so okay, what Ghost I would say shells. first because I, I the the thing about that Ex Machina film is. In relation to the the what can I know question, before right. I go on to the pathopolitics, this was a really, I found it like a very neat way of trying to immediately get into the question of masculine and feminine sexuation in terms of the question of hysteria and obsession and the question of knowledge in relation to the sexual non-rapport. So when we were talking about Ava in uh, Ex Machina and her sort of position of the hysterical robot not knowing what they were and needing to get knowledge from Caleb. This was kind of much more on the on the model of the sort of Hegelian master-slave dialectic of basically asking for knowledge. You know, tell me what I am and you know one, and then once you tell her what she is, she says, no, I'm not that. Fuck off, basically. <laughs> Which is, you know, feminine, the feminine position of the hysteric of don't tell me what I am that actually do tell me and then I'll be able to differentiate myself in relation to what you think that I am. So that kind of first way of trying to talk about 
the question of the female robot because I think it's important to to immediately from right off the bat get out this idea of the question of the male scientist creating the female body. Right. So already you have in that's a perfect example of the creation of the perfect female body and and hence why in that film the Turing test is so emblematic because the whole of their relationship is based on a Turing test. He wants to know can I tell or not if she's female? Sorry, if she's conscious, but actually her consciousness is predicated on her femininity. So you see that their love relationships, their their sexual non-rapport as well, is completely based around the fact that he needs to find out what he needs to be convinced that she is conscious. But actually, he's not being convinced she's conscious, he's being convinced that she's a woman. And so this whole creation of a body, a woman's body, for the sake of the man's knowledge is what we're, we're actually seeing in this relationship. And I think that the quote at the beginning of that is a Miller quote, which is to what lengths a man will go to make woman exist. You know, so they're trying to make her exist. And this is a question of knowledge. This is a question of him needing knowledge about her and her needing his knowledge to tell her who she is. So that kind of foregrounds the first level of the sex bot as a, as a product of, of masculine knowledge, as it were. So I just wanted to say that before the question of Patai politics, which appears in the next chapter, which is what can I, what should I do, which is right. this question of the ethics of psychoanalysis. And of course, you know, the ethics of psychoanalysis are not like any other ethics. And um, this is why in that chapter, we will talk about the Marquis de Sade and Lacan's famous Cree Cantavic Sade, and also his discussion of that in, in Seminar 7, which is where he sort of has his, which is where he outlines the paradigm of, of Lacanian ethics and the question of jouissance as a question of transgression. So this is the place where he will most thoroughly talk about the ethics of transgression and the ethics of desire and why they're different from philosophical ethics. But also, not only are they different, but he uses Kant as an example of how we can actually see the Sardian ethics at its most pure. So for Lacan, it's not just that, that there was some diabolical evil in, in Kant that he didn't realise. It was that actually Sard was more Kantian than Kant because yeah. within, within Sard's ethics, the ethics of pure jouissance, you saw the pure formal system of Kantian ethics to it to, taken to its utmost, which actually for Lacan, Kant didn't quite get to because he was still, you know, stuck in some sort of fantasy about, about what the ethics he was talking about. So in this chapter, the film that is used is as Ghost in the Shell. And the reason why is because it, it's really more about the question of the suffering body, of the female body as a weapon, as a sort of body of pure expenditure that you can do anything to, that you can't kill, basically, that right. can just be continuously used. You know, that film is not is not like a sardine film. It's not that I, I didn't ch choose that film because it's horrific, you know, um, sexual violence or anything, because that really wasn't, I didn't think that was necessary, given the fact that you already have that already happening in Sard um, with right. the libertines and with the sort of formal question of what's happening when they're engaging in the, the retraining of this, Eugenie de Misteval and, and what they do to her in order to, to change her subjectivity. So what I wanted to do is to find the structural parallel, even though they seem opposite between the body in Ghost in the Shell and the body in 
philosophy in the boudoir of uh, Marquis de Sade. So this idea of party politics came about through trying to think about a regime of, of governance that would understand suffering as a psychoanalytic ethic. And when I say ethic, I don't mean as in a good, nice thing and a good way to be, <laughs> but as, a, as a, a formal system. You kind of hit nicely with one of the, I don't know if you'd call it an axiom or one of the, the consequences you draw from this is, you know, if, if the, the first Kantian question leads you to the statement that thinking is alien to us, right, which mm-hmm. we've already kind of nicely, you've already got the thread going from the anti-philosophy stuff that we talked about, the, the patty politics gets us to this question about enjoyment is undead. And I thought that was really interesting about this you could call it a the Saudian antinomy if you want, or this tension right between, you know, the libertines and their 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 desire for this full satisfaction, but it's it's bounded by the the cycles of life and death, mm-hmm. and so this ultimate pleasure isn't merely death and destruction, but something something beyond life and death, right? The undead. Mm-hmm, I thought mm-hmm. that that was interesting, and you seem to put your own kind of personal take on a theme that we also find in, in Zizek, who will talk a little bit about this, this kind of notion of, of the undead related mm. to, to jouissance and enjoyment. I, I really thought that, that was interesting. And I, I suppose that I, I mixed in the ex machina because I do think that it, that it does nicely go forward to Ghost in the Shell because, mm. you know, one of the most horrifying scenes for me, at least watching and, you know, the whole movie is, is a little horrifying, but it's when, mm-hmm. you know, when the protagonist, the male protagonist sees what Nathan's been doing and he, and he, he not only sees the earlier bodies of the, the female, you can call them sex bots. I mean, that's uh, you, the, of, the, of the females that he's made, but you, mm. he sees the footage of some of the earliest ones and their their violence and their they just want to get they just want to be let out right they want to yeah. they want to be out of the maze if you yeah. will and yeah. they literally destroy their bodies mm-hmm. trying to claw their way out and so mm-hmm. I think that maybe that's why I, I completed the <laughs> oh yeah no 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 I mean it's, you're absolutely right I, I think that's completely was I think the thing is they all all of them entail aspects of all of the questions really Mm -hmm. um so definitely yeah like that film is about suffering (laughs) I mean (laughs) I think all of them are all all the films about sex bots are about suffering actually Mm -hmm. and and you asked actually because you were saying to me earlier about the question of partai politics and how come they didn't sort of mobilize it more and and it is literally because I came up with it as I was writing I was like yeah, this is a real, I could make this into a paradigm. So this is why I'm right. going to like develop it more after this book. I definitely think that it's a question of, you know, the question of suffering and the question of enjoyment is the central theme of all of those films. Um, definitely, yeah. Would it be appropriate? What I'm thinking about, you know, in terms of this discussion is I am immediately going to Schraber, I think, and maybe in mm-hmm. particular in that dynamic between, who is it, Caleb is creator character in Ex Machina, correct? Nathan is the guy, isn't he? Caleb is the younger boy. Gotcha, okay, gotcha. So so the image that was conjuring in my head was this image of of God and Schraber and that sort of, I don't know, I think that's a very apt metaphor between those those two relationships. Mm -hmm. Is it Ava and Ava and Schraber perhaps are sort of kin in a sense? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. 
you do have a section on Schraber. Do you do you want to? Because I, I think that when I was first reading that section, I was thinking about how Schraber is in his episode, in his delusional episode, in the onset of his psychosis, when he has mm-hmm. this, he goes on this journey of becoming woman, where he mm-hmm. has this initial thought that, hey, it'd be nice to be, you know, to have sex like a woman. Mm-hmm. It does seem like there's this way in which he is kind of a proto-sex bot, right? That he's he's meant to procure this continuous enjoyment. Mm-hmm. The voluptuousness, right? Yeah, the continuous Which I think the, the sex bot kind of has that characteristic right oh, right yeah right. Do, do you want to say a little bit about your work on Schraber or, or what theoretically you know yeah. Schraber was yeah well I mean I think obviously Schraber is a very fascinating character and I know you guys have done like really great talks about that already so I won't go too far into Schraber but I I think Schraber is very significant obviously because of the question of psychosis and mm-hmm. particularly because I use this concept of ordinary psychosis, which right. is a clinical a clinical hypothesis, which emerged in the sort of nineties and is is still employed by clinicians working in the New Lacanian orientation. I'm not a clinician, so I don't have to declaim my allegiance to any school of clinical thought or anything like that. Gotcha. So before anyone starts <laughs> like sending me hate mail or anything, I, I, I'm not sure, so I, I can say whatever the fuck. Yes, <laughs> please like, do. So my, 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 like, obviously, as far as I'm concerned, the whole question of suffering in the clinic is a completely different issue. And I would never dare to, to enter into the ethics of that um, as a profession. But the hypothesis of ordinary psychosis is a really interesting conceptual framework because it starts to to use different parts of Lacan in order to understand the, the structural question of psychosis as opposed to neurosis, which represented a big sort of departure in the way that the clinic operated with the type of subjects that were coming through the door. And there's lots of clinical work that tries to talk about how these subjects are a product of the 21st century and the the convergence of science and technology and capitalism and all you know the sorts of things that philosophy and theory has been trying to talk about in in other ways for the last 20 years so it's interesting to read the clinical work in relation to political stuff surrounding the question of the postmodern subject and the the suffering of under capitalism and the body under capitalism and gender and sexuation all these questions that are being tackled by political thinkers right and as we know there's currently a big massive schism going on between the malarian clinic for example and some and lacanians who don't agree on certain aspects about the way that people are talking about the question of trans, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll, we'll bracket, bracket that, but only to say we are, well, from my part anyway, staunchly anti-transphobic and any kind of discourse that is anything detrimental or phobic to say about, about the trans experience. What I'll say about ordinary psychosis is that it actually represents quite an interesting theoretical hypothesis about how to use the psychotic as a model, which is very similar to Deleuze and Guattari. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. very interesting. I, I know that people are working on this, but the, but there is, you know, this question of schizoanalysis and the question of ordinary psychosis have lots of convergences. And in a sense, the move away from the sort of binary psychotic and neurotic question and the move towards ordinary psychosis as a hypothesis, i.e. we're all psychotic, 
generally speaking, and then you may find the odd neurotic as opposed to the other way around, which is the Freudian clinic of repression, right. that we're all neurotics because we don't get enough sex or we can't have what we want. And therefore we're all walking around with hysterical symptoms or obsessional neurotic symptoms. But then every now and again, you'll get a psychotic person who comes in and actually doesn't have a name of the father and doesn't operate within the same system of meaning that the rest of us does. So therefore you can't treat them in the same way. Okay. So that was the previous way. Whereas now, if you were to ascribed to the hypothesis of ordinary psychosis, you'd say, no, don't assume that there is a name of the father, because actually what we're finding is there is most of the time no coherent system for anybody. All that you have is a sort of compensatory make-believe that you have in place in order to, to get through life, as it were, so that the name of the father or the Oedipus complex or whatever stands in for one possible sun of tying together your real imaginary symbolic horizons so that's the sort of later clinic and i think that there is so much interesting sort of theoretical ground there to think about in terms of the question of enjoyment and the question of the female body that it's quite useful for thinking about the question of the sex bot and so schreiber here as the fantasy of this all enjoying female receptacle of god's sperm or whatever is a fantasy about what it is to be a woman. And that fantasy is not crazy in a sense. It's real. It's true. Uh, it's it's what we all have because we all have this fantasy about the female body. That's the question of, of, of sexuation, which is that what defines this strange non-rapport is the idea of some fantasy of the all-enjoying feminine body. So you heard the expression, obviously, pousser la femme, which is the push to woman, which supposedly happens at the height of psychosis, or at least it did for Schreber. I suppose my my way of making it more politically subversive would be to say, well, it's not the it's not the push to the woman; it's the sort of return to the woman in the sense that we all already are female, and then you become male because right. it's a less it's a more repressive state to be a masculine subject than a feminine subject so in a sense all that Schreiber does is go you know fuck you I'm not going to be a man no I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to enjoy myself so that's that's kind of like this um but then you know you've got Kittler's reading of Schreiber and his all the thing about the sort of the technological um fibers and and um which I loved that was just an amazing image I think of of cosmic Schreiber with these little Divine, uh, microscopic yeah. tendrils that are just there's trillions and trillions of them and that's kind of the image that it conjures in my head but yeah anyway. exactly <laughs> no no it's that totally that's exactly the image i wanted to <laughs> conjure because it is so not like you should read the kittler essay about freud saying you know is there is there more truth in my theory than you right. know, he's talking about listening to daniel schreiber's writings and he's like how did he, you know, how did he know all this stuff? Because he's sort of describing my discoveries about thermodynamics and, and right. how and how it works. So so he kind of thought that there was this inherent truth that Schreiber was discovering that Freud was was working out in his in his writings about psychosis. So then, you know, Kittler writes about this as in relation to technology and media and mm -hmm. um, and reinterprets that. So that's a really I think that's a really worthwhile angle, actually, Kittler's understanding of. It, it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, that, that Freud himself would have the, not just the perspicacity, but the honesty to, to say that in his reading of the memoirs. I think that Coop and I discussed it just a little bit because I haven't, I didn't even know about the, the essay, so I will have to find it and read it. But it's just, 
you can see in Schreber's way of describing the phenomenon, the nerves and rays of God, that he is, I don't know if on the cutting edge of the technological, of the, the whole machinic phylum or whatever, but those images are permeating and they, they are, it's the same milieu that Freud and Schreber are, are sort of working in being well-read in that sense. I do want to go back just really quickly to hmm. your preface. I wanted us to talk a little bit about the the Rocco's Basilisk. Yeah. Because I'd never heard of this, and I find it fascinating. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and I, I love that that is, I really love that that's how you start. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of your take on it? Because you, you, do, yeah. you do try to, I would say objectively, right? You, you, you try to give the background. I love the... Uh, the response that you quoted, because it does it does seem like what's the guy's name? Oh, Yudkowsky. Uh, Yudkowsky. He yeah. seemed he seemed pretty triggered. He seemed pretty <laughs> he seemed he pretty angry one. at this hypothesis or this thought experiment. I think is how you describe it. Do you want to mm. do you want to mm. say a little bit about the the thought experiment of Rosa yeah, yeah. So this thought experiment, I think it was, was twenty thirteen or something, but it was yeah. this um, on an internet forum of people talking about artificial intelligence. Less wrong, I think. <laughs> yeah, less wrong. Exactly. And um, they came up with this thought experiment about the possibility of a, a all-powerful and sort of omnipotent, omniscient artificial intelligence that would one day exist. And the way that they came about, you know, the, the sort of reasoning they used to postulate this idea kind of got them into this um, impossible situation where once they thought it, they had made themselves into kind of like slaves of this creation because it kind of entailed within the thought the idea of the idea of divine retribution if you didn't do everything you can to make this thing come into being. So it was a sort of like a kind of a bit of a, a St. Anselm's ontological argument you know once you think of that than which nothing greater can be conceived right. then you cannot think of anything that would be less great so therefore you've just brought god into existence so you're fucked basically and, <laughs> and, and, and so so it's kind of like that but then it's a bit like um pascal's wager so it's it's sort of painting yourself into a corner if you're there i say a, a sort of very paranoid philosophy mm-hmm boy oh, you know who doesn't Uh-oh. have any friends and he's oh exactly so we, we're all sitting there thinking oh shit with with um not just boys girls too like you know that you once you thought the thought that's it we are doomed unless we do everything we can in our power to make sure that this ai can exist because then if you didn't you'd be kind of like taken away from god or ai's greatness as it you'd, were. Be, you'd be damned for all eternity. You'd be damned for all eternity. Right. And then what would happen is the AI could come back and recreate a version of you and torture you. You know, whether that's torture, psychological torture or physical torture. But the point is, is that you're infinitely replicable and there is no escape because he knows everything and he has a way of finding you. So it's kind of like this fantasy of the the completeness of knowledge the completeness of the all-knowing being where there is no outside because it's total it's sort of total screen isn't it you, you see you can see everything and these poor boys were really <laughs> scared because they thought 
oh my God, like we've, we've made something that we can't unmake. So that's hence why it became the Basilix because, you know, once you look at it, it sort of devours you. Right. And and Yudkowsky was really angry at these boys because he was like, well, you know, don't don't use the magic potion. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. now you're, you're going to, you've damned us all. It was taken really seriously. And, you know, there were people who wrote serious papers about it and, and used, you know, properly, you know, sort of analytic philosophers who were using logical procedures to try and work out this exact way in which this would happen. I just found it such a brilliant illustration of the way the fantasy that underlies so much talking about artificial intelligence. And I mean, if you look at, for example, Ray Kurzweil, who writes massive tomes about Mm -hmm. the singularity and the future of AI. And I won't say that I've, I've, I've read them all. In fact, I don't think I've read. No, actually, I'll tell you what I've done. I, got hit hold of his biggest fattest book and I looked up where he spoke about sex and I found three I found three (laughs) paragraphs or something saying something like because we've found that actually sex is not just about biological reproduction humans also do it because it's fun literally something like that and and it's like so we're to trust you to understand the future of the human species that to me just sort of was a perfect way of kind of like exhibiting the complete lack of any grasp of the dimensions of the the psychoanalytic dimensions to everything that is fantasized about when people talk about artificial intelligence and um, and ultimately this particular little story I think was kind of a good way of thinking about the discrepancy between on the one hand the question of the replicability of the sort of cybernetic algorithmic subject i.e. the language, the processing system, the brain, and the enjoying body, which right. is a whole other mention, um, <clears throat> which was within the basilisk because they were all worried about them being tortured. But yeah, so they, they couldn't quite decide whether they were like a lump of meat that could be tortured or whether they were this infinite algorithm that was undead, that was kind of like, you can't kill me. I'm going to be like trapped in the machine, like a sort of nightmare ghost in the machine that would be forever, you know, activated. So yeah, that was a kind of like backdrop to how I, I thought I wanted to start the discussion. No, it, it's I mean it's it's brilliant, and you I forget if it's in chapter two or three where you also bring up perhaps an equally horrifying in a totally different way this notion that there are all these fantasies about AI being hostile, and even you know going back to um, to Chopek and the notion of robot itself, but you posit that. It's just as likely, if not more so, that AI will be indifferent, right? Mm. And there's something, I forget the, I think it's Thomas Carew, I have to look this up, but the, the give me more love or more disdain, right? This, this notion that like we can only fantasize at the extremes, it's really the indifference that, that potentially lies in the future, in the singularity mm-hmm. or in, you know, super intelligence that they, you know, this, which, which is a, to me, a much more, conceivable you know because because you're right there's there's so much so much of the the kernel of that thought experiment is about this this fantasy as you said mm. caught between a slab of meat and sort of um, the infinitely uh, malleable ghost in the machine soul mm-hmm. in the ai mm. cooper did you have anything um that you wanted to go to i don't i don't want to hog it and i do feel like we're broaching an hour and a half and i know we've only like scratched the surface because there's there's so much going on we haven't really touched on, I think, the the concept of the lat house, which I think mm-hmm. is a pretty important. We should at least touch on that before we mm-hmm. before we wrap up. 
That's obviously super relevant, I think. Just a quick note, though, for you both. I'm deciding, I've named the episode Schraber's Basilisk, brother. Oh, <laughs> oh cool. <laughs> you should subtitle it that, maybe. You should, you should keep the title pretty clear for the gotcha. for the audience, right. what, what we're doing it here. And, uh, you know, I would just say, just throwing it out there, since we really have set the ground, Isabel, if you would be so kind in, in the next few months to, to come back, we could go deeper. You know, I feel like if we started talking about the sexuation graph. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's an hour might, and a half. Yeah, it, it might be another hour and a half if, <laughs> if you, you feel me. But yeah, I mean, like I was fascinated by this notion of, of Lighthouse. And I'm glad that Coop, you've got, you've got some good quotes to your, what I thought, what I, what I like going back mm-hmm. was that you tied it into the, the Black Mirror episode of Archangel. Do you want to, I'll give you the floor because I just want to <laughs> know a little bit about maybe what, what this concept. Yeah. I hadn't heard of this was, before, before your was book either. So. You. Yeah. So the Latouse or Latouse or however anybody ah, okay. wants to, I mean, no, literally you can say, well, cause it's, isn't, it's a made up word, isn't it really? So um, <laughs> it doesn't matter, but. Hey, I'm from Texas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we call so, it Lighthouse. Lighthouse. So the Lighthouse. <laughs> Oh, I can read my own quote. It's <laughs> a machine, an artificial object for siphoning off enjoyment and neologism, combining the French vent for wind, alluding to the breath from the lungs, ventus, suction cap, and the Greek oisia for being. And so this strange little thing appears just once in Seminar 17. And Lacan's talking about it actually in relation to, well, he's talking about tape recorders at first and the fact that people come into his class and they can record his voice and then they can go off and they can listen to his voice completely detached from his body and that enjoyment both of his voice and their enjoyment of his voice is no longer in his body. I mean, you know, the idea of the recording instrument as being a strange thing, but actually, you know, it was a while ago. So, but now this idea of the kind of ability to abstract partial objects, as it were, from the body is something that takes on a a much more complex nature. So the question of the Lathus, first of all, is a question of a problem of a psychoanalytic problem in relation to the question of the object in um, psychoanalysis, because so, you know, for psychoanalysis, the object is a is a very, very important concept. And the object of psychoanalysis is is, you know, this the object A, which is a sort of non-substantial object, but it's just the, the cause of desire, which is really the cause of the subject in a sense. And we have the object, we also have the question of partial objects in relation to the objects that fall from the body. So we have Lacan adds two, so the Freudian drives, the oral and the anal, Lacan adds the um, scopic and the invocatory drives, which are the, the gaze and the voice. So these sort of partial objects are causes of desire. And the thing is about the Lathus, what the potential that I saw in this uh, this little kind of nugget that Lacan just puts in, in Seminar 17 as this artificial object that has been created by the um, merging of science and capitalism, if you like, or um, technology that the ability to create artificial forms of siphoning off bodily enjoyment so of course he's talking about tape recorders but but then we could talk about all of the ways in which technology can do that now on a much more complicated or even neuronal level for example and the ways that you can intervene in the body to take out or put in enjoyment which does twitter have relevance there 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, that, I mean, I, I, I think, it feels like on its face, the tape recorder and Twitter, there's not a lot. I mean, it's sort of the same sort of inscribing and recording process, right? Well, in a sense, yeah. I mean, the thing about the Lathus is that you can think about it in terms of virtually, you know, there's a many my, myriad of things that you could think of are Lathuses in the sense that they're abstracting some form of enjoyment from the body right. and allowing you to sort of infinitely replicate it however you want. But also it's a question of, intervening on the level of the body that kind of short circuits a previous type of relationship. So the reason why the Lathus is interesting is because we can think of all different types of forms of interventions on the body that change our form of enjoyment. And for example, you can think of the kind of panic that people had when, what well, they still have, but started to have when young babies were given screens instead of being spoken to by their mummy or daddy, whatever, they'd be, here you go, right. have your tablet. And so immediately they were in, engaging in a completely different way with their gaze and with language because suddenly there was this other intervention into the field, the scopic field. And so that's another way that you can think of the Lathus. But, but the way that I think about it, particularly in this chapter, is microchips and the story in Black Mirror of the little girl who gets a tracking device put into her brain in order for her mum to monitor everything that happens to her. But basically what she ends up doing is creating a sort of pseudo autistic subject because the girl grows up without knowing how to respond to other people's feelings because she's got this device that intervenes in her sort of instinctual reactions to, to seeing distressing images so on the level of drive right. she's got for example she'll see something that looks violent but the tracking device will be able to monitor her adrenaline levels and shut off the image so that she's not able to experience it so on the level of being able to mo moderate your actual visceral experience of pleasure or pain or whatever the lathus here is an object that completely explodes any of our ability to have a sort of standard way of understanding the psychoanalytic notion of, of jouissance, for example. So that's why I thought it was very interesting to try and already get this idea of the Lathus from Black Mirror of the, the sort of monitoring chip and see how that can end up in a very disastrous way with the little girl ends up killing her mum because she isn't under, able to understand her own responses of her body. So this kind of like cleaving of the body and language and the ability to understand your own bodily responses is another sort of dimension to artificial intelligence that is, ha is starting to happen. Well, we've got Neuralink, you know, so Neuralink already has chips that it supposedly can insert into the brain and that you could then control with a, a, a handheld um, thing. And I don't think any humans have had it yet. I don't, I, when I wrote the book, they hadn't, but they might have by now. But right. you can imagine how like, what the hell like this is a terrifying scenario like what we don't have no idea of understanding how that will affect our our bodies or our minds and um i think that's why black mirror is really such a brilliant text for thinking about these things and and, and um trying to imagine all the t forms of horror that could happen it's not all horror but I, but it's not just a, it's not about being scared it's about like trying to think conceptually about what it what we're actually worried about with with these things so yeah that's the lathus um it makes sense you know the way you work through the episode and the way you describe Which it, it makes, archangel is the episode i guess we could just briefly yeah. right it's yeah. season five i believe and it makes sense why you pair it up with this other 
concept that maybe he only uses in seminar 17 the the alethosphere right yes. which yeah. uh, i have the spherical self-contained yet expansive world where the subject is plugged into her own singular mode of enjoyment yet is mm -hmm. recorded by the other mm -hmm. i thought that was interesting because obviously that you know in the way you described the relationship with the mother and the the way that the archangel ship uh monitors her her drives and sort of taps into them and and uh censors them and all mm -hmm. this that it makes sense that the elusosphere fits in perfectly with that and it, mm -hmm. it it reminded me of you know obviously aletho for truth right aletheia um it, it reminded me a little bit of the way Parmenides describes the sphere as this happy little self-contained mm. world, except obviously for Lacan, he's, you know, it's going to be plugged in. So, you know, it's interesting then that just in that notion of that world of enjoyment, that spherical self-contained world being recorded by the other, mm -hmm. that already the elite sphere implies the litus, right? Some kind of siphoning off. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the ability to, to sort of create your own personalized regime of truth, uh, not just enjoyment, but that you can really have sort of abstract yourself to the point where you have a self-contained domain of meaning and the lathus enables or that facilitates this, this particular sort of dialectic between you and your little surrounding. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, the lethosphere, is, is, he mentions it, only in that seminar it's not really like developed anywhere else but in terms of you know Lacan's relationship to spheres is is you know he he has he doesn't like them <laughs> because to him this this idea of spherical thinking is sort of what he attacks as well in in relation to anti-philosophy which is the sort of attempt to always try and get a sort of holistic idea of the human being as this this con 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 coherent thing rather than what he's always trying to do which is to show the negativity and the splitting and the spaltong of the the subject right hence why hence why his um he uses his his paradigm is not the copernican universe but the keplerian elliptical orbit which has sort of two points of of orbit as opposed to the one copernical Right, it's got the foci instead of the centers, and yeah, and yeah. it's why he's fascinated with the donuts, the the Taurus, and you know, yeah, that's, yeah. right. It, it really that that brings home why he's or exactly his his fascination with it because it it topographically reveals that that anti philosophical notion against against sphericality and, and yeah. all of that. Exactly of sort of the well the 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 open set and the knot hole and the the Taurus. And then, hence, this is then we'll, we'll go into the graphs of sexuation, but <laughs> I don't know if you want to go into them, but this is the, you know, this is kind of like the crux of, of the whole Lacanian edifice, I guess, is the, the question of the open set, you know, the incompleteness. We could look at that diagram. I, I know that that would open up a huge can of worms, even though that, that really is central to your work. Maybe this is, is kind of... A cliffhanger for for the audience but i would be interested if we wanted to look at another diagram mm -hmm. because this was the one that i wanted to pick your brain about mm -hmm. um and i think Coop, you've got this down below do you want to say anything about how you end your book oh god that, that <laughs> or is that or is that even more is that even more of a can of right <laughs> i mean i start kind of i mean i made this as opposed to lacan so that therefore i should know i should be able to explain it uh, so th this this kind of last borrow me and not as it were is my way of trying to 
tie up the last question of yes. my book, which is what is man, which is the fourth Kantian question, which I end on because to me, it's the question that is not our question to ask, but it's the question of AI. So these three Borromean circles, which contain within, within them the little Santhome in the center, what is man, the question. And each one of them has, as you see, knowledge, act, hope, which stand in for what can I know, what should I do, what can I hope for? And within the circles, they try and represent the different ways the sort of domains that I've tried to cover relate to to each other in the book. So in the relation of in this the section of the of knowledge, the non-relation is the territory of the sexual non-rapport, which we won't go into, but it is the the question of the um, inherent antagonism between masculinity and femininity, which form the the kind of basis for the Lacanian subject, as it were. And then we have on the act which is the question of ethics, which is the question of the lathus, which is, we, as we just spoken about, the question of what kind of, what can we do to bodies and what, what kind of bodies will, will we be able to have given this intervention of this kind of third technological object that we don't necessarily know about or understand um, yet. And then, of course, AI in the top here in the section of hope, which is my last chapter on the question of futurity, really, I suppose, mm-hmm. the question of where we end up with when we fully do have this supposed fantasy of AI and when human beings are able to replicate themselves um, non-sexually or without the need for the question of masculinity and femininity. What kind of future is that? And is that something that we understand yet? So which is why the last, the last chapter is the one on, on Blade Runner and... Mm-hmm. and um, this whole problem, which seems to be a problem for a lot of fantasies about AI, which is that what happens when you create a being that can recreate itself and doesn't need you anymore, which is the problem with Blade Runner. It's the problem of masculinity and the problem of the man trying to come to terms with all these different forms of femininity that he is encounters throughout that film. And, you know, there are all these different women that he encounters and in lots of ways he's trying to search for the thing that would make him a man, which he doesn't find because he, he thinks he's a born creature, but then he finds out he's not actually a born creature. He's just a, a replication. And, well, we never really know what what he is in the end. But to me, that film is about, it's about masculinity, but it's also about the problem of replication. That's what that, that little diagram tries to <laughs> do. Oh, it's beautiful. And, thank you. What I loved about it, and I, I think I mentioned this to Cooper, if not to you, that it left me wanting more, right? I mean, like it left me thinking, it left me with new questions. And, and I think that that's really what you can, that's one of the best things that you can ask from a, from a good book is not, will it answer all my questions? Yeah. But will it, will, but will it stoke my desire to, to keep asking and to keep searching and to keep thinking and wonderful ways that you, you know, isolate a, you know, a movie for each of these chapters, sometimes multiple, because we didn't talk about her, which I found to be rewatching that and thinking about your book was, was also giving me a, a lot to, to chew on and ruminate mm. on. But, but yeah, like pairing up those questions and the chapters with the movies added a lot of extra depth to my enjoyment and Good. my contemplation and, yeah. and but but definitely leave 
we, we, you know, I was like flipping when I saw this, when I saw this diagram at the end and I was like flipping, I was like, what? No, that's, that's the end. You know, I was like, oh <laughs> man, my, my brain exploded. Um, oh, that's so nice. No, no, it's, it's great. And that's why I'm excited about, I'm glad that you're still thinking about patapolitics and, mm. and going to, you know, further your, your research and, and, you know, you're going to build off hopefully uh, of, of what you've done here. Yeah. Cooper, do you, do you want to say anything before we give Isabel the the floor for a, for a final? I mean, just to state that I think for me, the topological elements of Lacan are some of the more interesting stuff because it kind of dovetails into a lot of our discussions, not only of, because I was thinking even this sort of cosmic Schraber, it almost brings to mind as well, in Leotard, the the great ephemeral skin. And so that's kind of where my mind is wanting to go. But I also, just in general, so just to kind of ground you, I think for me, I'm a huge fan of Lacan's work, but mm. also where Guattari kind of picks up these Lacanian concepts or like discusses them and kind of puts his own spin. So it's kind of, it's very fun to see those little threads through the through lines between those mm-hmm. two thinkers mm-hmm. whom I both enjoy, you know, whether I can synthesize all of that that's a different discussion, but mm-hmm. um, just in terms of enjoyment-wise, that's kind of the position I'm coming from. So I very much enjoy your own little Borromean knot here. Brilliant. Well, I'm just I'm so glad and flattered and happy that you enjoyed the book, and I'm really happy that you felt that it opens up questions as well, and and that it's actually sort of stimulates more thought because mm-hmm. that's that's really the the, the idea. You know, it's, it's there in no way can I possibly say. I've had given an answer to anything that definitely wouldn't be the point of the book. So I'm really um, glad that you that you enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna have to take a look at seminar 17 because I'm just interested. I think the the Latouse <laughs> is uh, something that I don't know kind of lends itself into our areas of interest, Taylor. But yeah, I, I know we'll, we'll do more Lacan in the future. Um, we plan to try to do some more anti-Oedipus, mm. I, I, you know, I, you know, that's, even though that, that book's been talked about to, to death, I know, mm-hmm. um, but you gave us, a, I think that your thread on ordinary psychosis uh, and schizoanalysis, yeah, that's, that, that is definitely fascinating because that wasn't, um, I'm not, you know, uh, conversant with the most recent trends. I know you said since the nineties, so I, mm. I should be, but, 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 but I, I may have to pick your brain on about some literature to to read up yeah, on sure. about that and um, sure, yeah. and as I said you know I would love to we would love to to have you back and of course you know we could you know we could obviously we would want to talk more about the sexuation stuff mm-hmm. but I but but definitely want to keep in touch so we can hear about your your current and future research projects and and definitely. what you're working on yeah um, no definitely I'd love to come back oh that's that's great and. Just to remind everyone, go out and get a copy of Isabel Millar's The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence, which just dropped. I mean, it just dropped this year, correct? Yeah, in May, um, right? Yeah, yeah. In, or just in this May, month? May? This month? I think it was this month or last month. But you're wow. very, yeah, So it's fresh. It's hot off the press. It's, it's off the fresh. Presses. It's fresh. <laughs> and again, like, I'm very sorry that the bloody publishers charge what they charge i find <laughs> that, it scandalous quite frankly well that's um, that's that's paul do. graves though i mean paul graves yeah. they and, and it i'm sure i guess their whole, target their target market is probably institutional libraries, libraries institutions. yeah it's yeah. just for universities isn't right. it right you know and, it, you know as you become more of a household name and more famous you'll have many more publishers to choose from <laughs> and you know yes. you 
I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and who will want to pay me lots of money. You if you're you listening, guys, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, you get more money for your publications and it, it, the the books would be more affordable. But, yeah, exactly. You know. But, you know, my, my, um, my parting shot would be to say that academic publishing should not work on that model that we should pay academics properly for their work and that they should be more not only should the books be accessible for people to buy but you know it shouldn't be a question of huge profits for big companies but it should be a question of fair pay for the people who write the books and you know I think it's very strange that so many people are like wary to say it but it's true you know and um it's it's quite scandalous but at the end of the day, Palgrave Macmillan are never going to listen to me on this <laughs> podcast, so it doesn't matter what I say no. anyway. But, um, but yeah, we'll go in the cell eventually, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Isabel, for, for joining us today. Thank you. This Thank will you be, so much. <laughs> this will be Cooper and Taylor and the Machine of Gun Conscious Happy Hour signing off for the week. Surround you. We're in surround you. We're in surround you.